0: To be Sunday school teachers, to pick him up for Sunday school. And he was so traumatized by the experience that he decided not to do it. And it was only in 2020, with the death of George Floyd, that his mom said, No, that wrong has to be righted. Welcome back to another episode
1: of Everyday Leadership, and today it's a pleasure just to be able to chop it up with my brother who is a lawyer, he is a writer and a columnist for spaces like The Voice, he does a lot of work with anti-racism, he's normally snatching off edges on LinkedIn and just putting his thoughts out there in an unfiltered, enriching way which I love to read. And he is a man of many, many talents that we're definitely going to delve into today. I have Terence Channer in the building. How are you doing?
0: I'm fine. I don't know who this man of many talents is. But yeah, it's it's a pleasure and an honour to be
1: on your show today. So so thank you. I don't know if I'm done Couple of years, like going back and forth on online, in different spaces and places, having having conversations. In fact, I think what's that thing called again? Was that that like everyone was going on during the pandemic? Clubhouse, clubhouse conversations. Like we, 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 we were in that space where we are in that space in that space together for a minute. So I'm, I'm I always tend to, especially at the start, just peel it back a little bit and find out what was a young. Terence like because you seem to have lived the i want to say the perfect dream of becoming a lawyer in a black household so I'm, I'm curious like what was that young, young Terence about
0: Well, let me tell you now I am a pastor's kid and so what now a pa- yeah a pastor's kid uh, my dad's uh, they call him bishop, so you can imagine that growing up i my three siblings, my brother my two sisters I'm the youngest of four we were brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so uh, being in a, a Pentecostal household was very interesting, very interesting experience so a young Terence was very much someone who was expected to be in Sunday school and that evening service. Do I have to? Yes, we're going. Sunday school evening service, very much. You can imagine that wind rush, and I know we like to use the term, and I suppose nowadays I'm going to be a bit more careful when they use the term wind rush, being banded around a lot, but my parents came okay in the sixties, I believe my dad arrived in 1960 and my mom followed shortly afterwards. And there is that history, that Pentecostal tradition where my father was a Sunday school teacher in his church in Jamaica and he had an eye for one of his students in his class. And cut a long story short, after he moved to the UK, there was this epistolic, sort of like communications, the the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. But these were epistles from my dad to my mum, writing back and forth. And before you know it, they were, were married. And so we were brought up in that sort of very strict Pentecostal Christian. Type household, and it was very interesting. It was, it was, it had, it had its moments. I would say, in terms of my childhood, I had an amazing childhood. It was I, 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 one of the best periods of my life. Actually, was growing up as a child on the mean streets of West Bromwich in in, in the Midlands near Birmingham. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So. That was the start. The start was very much Pentecostal Christian, strict household, but lots and lots of fun, lots of interesting things were happening at that time. The political climate very much was, you can imagine growing up in the 70s and 80s, was very much different to what it is now. So the climate was very, very, the political, economic, socioeconomic as well. The, the client was very different for us, but looking back, I, I look back with extremely fond memories of a childhood that I wouldn't change for the world really. Would well, you say that the background
1: that you then had and being in that strict past as a kid upbringing is what helped you navigate from the streets and not get caught up In that lifestyle, which was very easy to do.
0: Yeah, well, a couple. I think a couple of things happened. The one main thing happened to me. I was was brought up in West Bromwich, and I lived there until the age of about twelve. And at that stage, prior to moving from West Bromwich to Burn on Trent, my dad, he was asked to pastor a church. And so we we had to move. And this is one of the most disappointing things that happened to me in my childhood at the age of 12 was to move from my established friends. So I had a group of friends around, primarily around a block. And it was four streets on that block. So you had Dartmouth Street, where we lived, Number thirty-eight, so three zero eight thirty-eight Dartmouth Street. You had Grange Road, Edward Street, and Lodge Road. So you had a block, literally a rectangle block. And my life revolved around that block. And around the corner, you had on Edward Street, you had Michael, and you had Paul Carty. Further up the road, you had Andrew Howe. Around the corner on Lodge Road, you had Junior Davis. These are all African Caribbean children. Around the, the corner at Grange Road, you had Brian Davis. Around the other, other corner, that same same street, Dartmouth Street, you had, you had George Whitmore. And so we had all these characters and all these children in, in my group were, were young black men. When I say young black men, I mean, I mean black boys. You can imagine black boys growing up in the 70s. Uh right? we moved from uh, we moved from West Bromwich. I was age 12. So we had the African Caribbean children. We had in my group, we had myself, Paul Foster, who didn't live around the block, we had Andrew Howe. Brian Davis, Andrew, Paul Carty, Michael Carty, George Whitmore. I mean, I remember all the names like it was yesterday because every single one of them was like a character out of an action movie. You know, it it was incredible. And every one of them, we had a story to tell. So primarily, and I'm not sure how this happened, but primarily we galvanized as black boys. Now, why that happened? They say birds of the feather flock together. Now, why we all coalesced and and grouped together is difficult to say. It's not like I didn't have white and Asian friends, but the core was a group of black boys. We didn't agree that many of us were brought up in the UK. For whatever reason, like in a prison, you have the Aryan group on that side. You have the black group on that side. You have the Jewish group on that side. You have the Latinos. There is something that happens. Right? And, and it, it's probably racism. Or you could say it's partly racism. You could say it's partly cultural. So there's all these things that when they say birds of a feather flock together and, and all these things push you together. And I've never, until I think this moment, asked myself why is it that Around the block where you have Asian, you have the Patels and the Singhs, because West Rami was primarily Indian, South, Southeast Indian, as opposed to Pakistani. You had white children. When the chips were down, <laughs> who, who, who was by your side? And it was black boys, black boys. Yes, inner city life was very black. And yes, I did have Asian friends. Obviously a piece that I'm going to post soon on internet that relate to this. But the company that I kept fundamentally, without any form of let's agree on this, let's agree to come together, were black boys. A phenomenon. African, Caribbean, they were all Jamaican. We spoke a form of patois. It wasn't the real thing. It was diluted with a bit of a rummy accent. We tried to emulate our parents. We thought we were speaking Patois. Even till this day, I thought, I was actually, was I speaking Patois? Was, what was that? We all tried because our parents were Jamaicans. They, they'd moved, they'd emigrated. they emigrated. They were part of that Windrush generation that came across. So they had their Jamaican accents and we tried to emulate them. So that's the background. That is the beginning of the journey. You have the Pentecostal Christian You have the streets as black boys. You have the question as to how did this happen? And I'm still trying to figure out. And I think after this show, perhaps me and you will try and figure out how is it that little boys quickly know what their group is. And this is phenomenal. It's a phenomenon.
1: Naturally gravitate gravitate to each other.
0: Yeah, and black girls with the black doll experiences. What happens to us, why we recognise... Our tone. What happens? It, and it's not just tone; it's also cultural. So that's the background, and and from that, and I think you've asked me a question, and I take too long to answer it. That's the background, and when I left to move to Berlin, Trent, it was a very unhappy time for me because I had to leave my core friends and. It may be that it was a good decision. I remember Mr. Gibbons telling me when we'd been falsely accused of vandalism. All all the group, I think the five of us, had been falsely accused of vandalising a telephone box. And the lollipop man reported us to school. You can imagine this white lollipop man, black boys, they must be guilty. So we got reported, and the headmaster, back in the day, you had corporal punishment, so we got changed, for something we hadn't done. The phone was already cut when we got to the box, when we were trying to phone the girl of our dream. I won't mention her name, because she's nowhere no There's still nowhere now. She might be embarrassed. <laughs> we tried to phone the girl of our dreams to the phone box, only to find that the, the cord to the phone, we didn't have mobile phones then, the cord to the phone had been cut. And the lollipop, Man went, Oh, you guys! Before you know it, the next day we were in the headmaster's office being caned, something we hadn't done. And Mr. Gibbons, my teacher, said to me, and I'll never forget his words, this was, I'm not sure if this is ironic or not, but probably the most influential teacher that I've ever had was a white man called Mr. Gibbons, and I've posted about him on LinkedIn before, who Pulled me to one side and said, Terence, if something like this ever happens again, don't get involved. Now, bearing in mind, we were totally innocent. The words from Mr. Gibbons, who was a brown bearded cardigan-wearing sporty, you know, your favourite teacher that used to look like that back in the day muscular looking guy who was sensitive at the same time and believed in me said look you know those words resonated look Terence in future just don't get involved and I think what he had seen he'd seen some promise in me he'd always seen that promise and yeah those were the days
1: it's interesting when you go if you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Go back in in time and you look at your upbringing because it really f- does form a foundation as to who we become as we as we grow up because fast forward now, I said you are you're now a lawyer, if the work that you do is spent advocating for other people, just like the way that I guess some of the injustice that you felt as a youngster growing up or even what um, what Mr. Gibbs even told you, of don't get involved Now you do get involved, but you're like Mr. Gibbons for other people in your in your role, fighting for them. I mean, what does that what does that feel like to go on that on that journey for you as a lawyer, especially as a black lawyer? Because there's not there's still not that many of us
0: in that profession. Yeah, how does it feel to be a black lawyer fighting for justice? It feels an honour. I still count it as a privilege to be. Able to make a difference. They say the pen is mightier than the sword. And I have the opportunity to pen powerful words that make a difference in people's lives through the pleadings that we serve, the documents, the papers you put them. <laughs> the papers that we serve in litigation, in particular to do with claims against the police for all sorts of misconduct from assault, wrongful arrest, false imprisonment, malicious prosecution, you name it. Some of it includes racist conduct, which I'm very happy to call out. I get frustrated at seeing. But the great thing about being a lawyer, particularly when I'm looking at black, men, particularly young black men who are stopped and searched for no reason than the colour of their skin, is the opportunity to try and write those wrongs. And clearly empathy it's not in short supply when I do this work, particularly when I'm representing black victims of police misconduct and brutality. Empathy is not in short supply. So it's an honour and a privilege. Do you separate being a lawyer
1: and being a black man or do you see them as one thing?
0: Well, it's difficult to separate and I I think it's important sometimes not to separate it. What a client needs is they need an advocate that is not going to become too emotionally involved in the case. But at the same time, they do not want someone that's going to be too detached. So it's striking that balance. I am able to empathize with my clients and make them feel as if I understand their plight. And I often say to my clients, Yes, I was stopped on suspicion of drug dealing. And I say that by way of empathy. Now, I'm, I haven't been. I've never been assaulted by the police. I've never been put in handcuffs. I've had a couple of experiences to do with traffic stops. And in fact, all of my experiences, thank God, are related to traffic stops. My experience with police stopping me on suspicion of feeling drugs was because I was in Catford, South East London, driving a luxury car in an area. According to the police, that was known for drugs. And the reason why, well, certainly the reason they gave for stopping me was because I'd stopped my vehicle a couple of times. And they confidently said to me, we believe you're dealing drugs. But of course, as soon as I opened my mouth and said, please explain yourselves, the mission was swiftly aborted with, oh, let's say so you do understand that well, you stop your vehicle for a couple of times, and uh, this area is known for a lot of drug dealing. Now, what he, what the officer failed to say was, this um, area is known for um, drug dealing by people that look like you, black people, black men like you, in this area dealing drugs. And what they do is, we look out for black men like you, because most of you do drugs, don't you? Now, obviously, that's what they were thinking, but didn't say now ironically years later a young man used to in fact not just used to still i think still lives in the area he was stopped and strip searched in a band wasn't an intimate search just to to take his trousers off in handcuffs extremely humiliating and he's a young man that i represented and this year not too long ago i think it was may I settled his damages claim against the Metropolitan Police. I'm still waiting for a letter of regret because they wanted to do a letter of apology. Uh, but we were to just take the letter of regret. with um, something. And I used to take him to Sunday school. I used to pick him up in a Sunday school van, take him to Sunday school, fast forward, I get stopped for drug, on suspicion of Drug Dealing. Fast forward, he gets stopped on suspicion of drug dealing as well. And that occurred in 2016. So that happened when I think he would have been around 22, 23. And his mother had a good presence of mind to be because this happened out- directly outside the, the home. He pulled up outside the home. And at that point, he was physically man handled, forced into handcuffs, forced into a police van, in tears, vandals, closed. Mom is recording all of this by now. And uh, he later emerges doing up his trousers. And he's a young man that I used to pick up for summer school. I used to be a summer school teacher. I used to pick him up for summer school. And he was so traumatized by the experience that he decided not to do it. And it was only in 2020, with the death of George Floyd, that his, mom, his mother said, no, that wrong has to be righted. That injustice has to be accounted for. And she contacted me and encouraged him to bring the case. And cut a long story short, we settled the case. I think it was May we settled the case. And remember, this happened in 2016. So it's taken all this time where he decided to put it behind him. And when I interviewed him, he was choking up. He was choking up because the trauma of that experience, the humiliation. I've never been forced into handcuffs. I thank the Lord I have never been forced into handcuffs. I'm forced to strip and the innocent. I mean, if you're guilty of, you know, engaged in criminality, then you can deal with it better on the basis that it was justified. Whereas if you know that your colour and the fact that you're young male is the reason, plus never helps if you're driving a BMW. Then the trauma lingers. So in that case, I was able to say not only I am empathizing you, but I used to take a summer school and I was I was stopped in that area. Thankfully, I wasn't assaulted. I wasn't forced into handcuffs and forced to strip.
1: How do you um... I'm gonna use the word "sane." I don't know if I did the right word to you, but how do you stay sane when you're listening to all these different cases? When you're hearing all these different transgressions being done against people, young, know, both young men and young women, like how do you not go into that space and place of anger, annoyance, frustration, and that overwhelm you instead? You go into that place of, okay, what do we need to do to, to fight and to at least to get something out of this and whether that might not be an apology but at least we're going to get something out of it which validates that what they did was wrong. So how do you kind of stay in that space as opposed to the, the first one which a lot of people would go into when I mean, we listen to that case? You would get vexed. You'd, you'd, yeah. be, you'd be angry. I, I
0: think there's two things. and We can use the analogy of perhaps an oncologist or a uh, or a cardiologist to answer the question. And it's this, number one, you're a professional. So the first thing is you have to be professional to be able to do a good job for your clients. It's no good to my client if I am unable to do a good job because I'm so vexed. I've taken my half That's not to say I, I can't be vexed. It's important to express... Anger, even as a professional. An oncologist seeing that the cancer has returned is not going to be cold. An oncologist seeing that the cancer has metastasized is not going to be clinical about that. You say, oh, by the way, yeah, the cancer is metastasized. There's not a lot we can do about it. You'll be dead in the next three months. Next patient. That's not going to happen because an oncologist is. Someone you would expect to have, or a healthcare professional, clinician, is supposed to have yes, professionalism, but also empathy. And a lawyer, likewise, is supposed to be a professional to be able to do a professional job and not lose it, but also to be able to say, "No, nah, man, that team are wrong, you know. It wrong my me and sometimes I speak to my clients in that way. If it's appropriate, I do speak to my clients. I do code switch. I enjoy it. I code switch and I switch into whatever it needs to be. If it's, Jamaica, if it's Jamaican, Jamaican patois. My poor, my poor example of Jamaican patois. I will pull it out. I'll pull it out and I've got, I've got clients. I mean, I speak to a client this morning. He's described in the expert psychiatry report as having dreadlocks. And he's Jamaican, and he's a, he's a, he, this is a claim against the Ministry of Defense for non-freezing cold injuries. And he's a client that called me up this morning at seven. I saw a missed call at seven. I, I mean, I, I didn't hear the phone because my phone's on silent. I wake up, and I see a missed call at seven in the morning. I'm like, there's a problem. When a client calls you at seven in the morning, there's something wrong. Yes,
1: there's something serious. struggling.
0: There's something happening. Because I spoke to him the day before. So I spoke to him yesterday at length. And I then see a missed call after him sending him an email. So I called him up and I said, look, what's happening? And I have to take off my lawyer's hat and put on my counselor's hat. And he's someone who, when we had to fight off an application to strike out the claim, so I, got, I inherited the claim from a, a well-known firm of solicitors, big, big, big firm. You see them advertise on TV, won't name, name names. So I inherit this claim from them, and I inherit a strikeout application with the case. Now, most solicitors would run a mile. There's a risk that this claim will be struck out. Clearly, there's a breakdown with the solicitor. He doesn't have a solicitor. He's desperate. Desperately searching for a solicitor, and I remember having my—I think it was my second COVID jab. On the way home in the taxi, taxi driver asked me, "Are you a musician?" I said, "No, I'm—I'm I'm a dupe. I am, but not a professional. I play guitar, but I—my day job is—is is as a solicitor." Oh, my friend is looking for a solicitor. Fast forward, I then take the claim on. He's got this strikeout application. And one of the things I notice about this case, and this case is against the Ministry of Defense, is that the communication between him and his lawyers is fractured. The relationship has broken down. Now, in my view, I didn't think it had irretrievably broken down. But you can imagine a Jamaican so-called dreadlocks soldier has two white men, a white partner and senior associate dealing with him, pulling their hair out at the inability to communicate or get through to him. And at the application hearing, what I said to the judge in my witness statement is, I speak to him in Jamaican Patois to be able to get certain things through to him and the very very sympathetic female circuit judge nodded i would say that was more than sympathy i i, I would say that she she nodded empathetically when i said that not there's a passage in my witness statement that says i speak to him in jamaican patwa i had given him sympathetic legal advice or empathetically but i use the word sympathetic And uh, we defeated the application. There were failings in the directions order, steps that hadn't been taken. And the defendant solicitors, the solicitors for the MOD, sought to strike it out. and, and, And one of the themes was he needed someone who could speak to him on that level. This also
1: speaks to the importance of representation. Because, like I said, you could step into that void regardless of how good or bad your, your past was. There was still a connection that could happen, which allowed him to feel a lot more comfortable to be able to share. You had a lot more cultural context as opposed to him representing represented by two potentially in being stereotypical white middle class lawyers who, for them, is just a matter of frustration. It's like, oh, we can't deal with this. We're in, we're out. So even that speaks, speaks to See that. But earlier on, you made that point around being professional, and I guess I'm curious: have you always been viewed as professional, even in line, in the line of duty, i.e., you going to court and you going to represent someone? Have you always been seen as a professional, or are you always seen as a black man first? My sister's also a lawyer, and now she's she's stopped. I remember we've had a number of these conversations where at times when she would turn up to court and she's had to, like, I'm actually meant to be here because I tried to send her somewhere else. Yes. So are you always viewed as professional? And if not, how do you then begin to change that? Or do you even bother changing other people's perception around what professionalism looks like?
0: Maybe I'll give you one of my anecdotes. There's so many of them. I, many years ago, represented a doctor and And I say doctor, I mean a PhD doctor, health and safety expert in a personal injury claim. This was a claim involving a go-karting accident. This claim went to trial at the High Court in the Strand. But before it went to trial, I'd spoken to him, and this was way back now, before you had profiles on websites and stuff like that. Even now, I don't think my profile picture is not on the firm's website. Even now, but back in the day, there was no way of identifying me online because we weren't online back then. So, and we're talking, we're talking wow, 2001. So, we're looking like good 21 years ago. So Before this went to trial, I attended a conference with counsel down in Fleet Street at a set of chambers there. And the client was waiting for me in the reception area. So I dealt with him for about 18 months prior to actually physically meeting him. So it's all telephone and correspondence. So when I turned up, at the conference, I signed in and the receptionist said and Mr. Chan, your client is in the waiting room. So I approach him in the waiting room. He looks over his newspaper, sees me, looks around me, looks through me, probably glances at me, puts his head back down into his newspaper. And what I'm about to tell you is not embellished. Some people like to tell stories and add to make it more dramatic, this is, there's nothing added, nothing taken away, this is what happened. So I approach, and I say, Dr, I call him Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, Terence Channer, Dr. Smith jumps up, startled, taken aback, amazed, and says, issues the immortal words, verbatim, "Terence, you never told me you were a black man. And let that sink in. Let that sink in. You never told me you were a black man.
1: So I'm not, I'm not you. And in my head already, there are a lot of thoughts that come up in the best way to respond. And none of them are coming from a good Christian soul
0: <laughs> right now.
1: <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what was, in that moment in time, what
0: were you thinking? Okay, when something like that happens, you don't have the chance to respond. And sometimes it's, it's good that you don't have a chance to respond because your response might be the wrong one. So, uh, I carried on as if nothing happened. I shook his hand. I went to the conference. But there was, it, 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 it was a trigger. It, it was a trigger. It was a catalyst. And I don't think it was a catalyst for bad. I think it was a catalyst for good. What Dr. Smith had done, and we all do it. let's let's be honest, we all do this, it's it's instinctive, it's intuitive, is that when you speak to someone over the telephone, you begin to paint a picture. That is unavoidable. I am not going to criticise Dr. Smith from painting me as a white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, six-foot-two, White man. I'm not going to criticise him for that. And in fact, if Dr. Smith had not, and his name is not, not Dr. Smith, I'm going to call him Dr. Smith. If Dr. Smith had not disengaged his brain from his tongue, I would never know that that was what he was thinking. And I would not be able to tell you this story today. That story has so many positives and I've not viewed it as a negative because after that happened, Dr. Smith began to invite me to lunch, ring me up. I was a curiosity. Now I know a lot of us will say, well, that's a negative. And in my view, you could see it as a negative in that I became Dr. Smith's, one and only black friend for that short period of time. But I've never viewed it as a negative because I was glad that I was able to smash a stereotype so spectacularly of a white lawyer. So he had in his mind, white man, white lawyer. He'd read my correspondence. A white man has written this correspondence. He'd read my letters He'd listen to me on the telephone and he's speaking to a white man. Now, it's not a case of me acting like a white man. It's a case of English is my first language. I write in English. I speak in English. I'm a lawyer. I will speak like a lawyer. I'll speak like a black lawyer, a white, I am just a lawyer. I'm speaking, a fireman goes into a fire and he fights the fire as a fireman. There isn't a black way to fight the fire, or a white way to fight the fire. You just get the water, and the foam, and you firefight. You don't. There isn't a black way to firefight. Now I know you might say well, actually there's a difference in that because, you know, black people are supposed to speak with a certain tone. <laughs> We're supposed to give give it away, give the game away. Yes and no. I mean, your accent is your accent, and I have no criticism of Dr. Smith, I was happy to have smashed his stereotype of what a lawyer should look like. And I got invited to his male voice choir concert. (laughs) He then shared his marital problems with me. It was an interesting episode. And so therefore the answer to the question is, which is, have I been viewed as a black man first and a lawyer second? The answer is in that particular case, no, I was always viewed as a lawyer first until I pitched up with my black self and smashed the stereotype. And of course, when I go to court, I mean, I, when I go to court, I'm dressed as a lawyer and therefore when I turn up at the desk, What you normally get is, are you solicitor or counsel? There isn't are you the client? I never get that. So when I go to a civil hearing, because I do civil litigation, I never get are you the client? And and crime is different. When you do criminal defence work, I've heard stories where barristers, black barristers, female and male, have been asked whether they are a witness or whether they are the defendant and that's unfortunate but i don't do civil litigation so i don't really come across that so that one story i think probably sums up what you you can imagine i mean nowadays if i'm dealing with a solicitor on the other side for the defendant my picture is going to come up straight away anyway so but yeah i think i, I hope i've answered your question
1: you have i think the way that you handle that situation, a lot of people will say that's a very magnanimous approach because you didn't respond, you just lean into the role that you were there to play. And like you said, you've on to be able to build a relationship with that person and build a bridge effectively because shattering one stereotype, obviously you got to know each other and everything else from then you, just, you felt the freedom to open up to you. So you built a bridge which is good and is what you want naturally. But I guess the other side would then be with so much anger, should I say, frustration that can build up. What is it that enabled you to be able to go to that side rather than to the, how dare you think I'm a, like I'm a I was a white, blonde, blonde guy. Like, are you like, what is it about me? What can't lawyers, can't lawyers be black or something like all that whole side of things, which, as you can imagine, a lot of people in particular, when you've had a lot of back and forth, a lot of frustrations, a lot of being seen a particular way all your life, then getting that in that building, it will it will be a trigger and it will bring up an emotional anger response. So there's something that you did, which is different, which I loved hearing about. So I guess I'm trying to find out what is it that people can learn that enables them to go into that phase that you did and recognising every, every circumstance and situation is going to be different. There are times where you need to come in with some anger and some fire, which you do online. And I've seen, I know you do that in person as well, but what is it that allowed you to
0: lean into that other side of things? I had the opportunity to, to feel aggrieved about that. But I think in all honesty, when dealing with situations of race and racism, and prejudice and stereotypes racial stereotypes we have to do a couple of things i think the first thing is to decide whether is this the battle that i need right now not every battle you're going to don your armor and fight not every battle you need to fight so the question is the first question is is this a battle that i need to fight and that should also dictate your levels of disquiet and anger as well, because I took the view that in this case, Dr. Smith had genuinely, and we all do it, genuinely thought that a black person would sound a certain way over the telephone, not thinking that he was ever speaking to a black person, a black man. So he genuinely had an idea what a doctor or a lawyer should look like. My job was done the moment I said, Dr. Smith, Terence Chan, my job's done. My job is done. There's no more battles to fight there. Once he said to me, I didn't think you were a black man. Now that, to me, I didn't, I didn't find insulting. I felt that that was a disengagement of brain and tongue that I'm in fact, I'm glad back. In, I'm glad he'd said that because it helped me to, to know if he hadn't said that, I, I wouldn't know that he had a stereotype in his mind, his mind's eye as to what a lawyer should look like. So when that happened and I blew apart, his stereotype, not by complaining, not by responding, how dare you. My job was done. He had this stereotype. It had been spectacularly dismantled to the point that he couldn't even prevent himself from saying those words. My job was done. And in fact, I never set out to do that job. That was never, my intention wasn't, oh, I bet he doesn't think I'm a, you know, it wasn't like, oh, should I mention I'm black? <laughs> it was never a case of, maybe I should tell him I'm a black person before the meeting, just to warn him. It was ne- that was never, that never occurred to me. Why would it? Exactly. think about that. Exactly yeah. the point. There's no need. And so it wasn't even like it was a job I had to do. You could say it was fortuitous. It simply happened and i never i've never viewed it as a negative although in a grander scheme of things when you look across the board with a wider perspective as to representation then of course there is a negative there that has to be rooted out which is what does a doctor or a lawyer look like and if the general population believes that a doctor or a lawyer should look like a white person preferably a white man then, of course, we have a problem of representation. But in this particular case, Doctor walked away thinking, my is black, man. He's doing a good job. So as far as I was concerned, if you're looking at case-by-case basis, which is not about case-by-case basis, it's about across the board. But on this individual case basis, bam, job done, job done. What would you like to see
1: happen when it comes to police brutality racism the difference live your quotes that's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk subscribe to live your quotes it's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you as well as bits and pieces of might be books I'm reading there might be some other content I'm tapping into and some bits and pieces around the podcast it's a nice short succinct newsletter which I know you're gonna enjoy but to enjoy it you need to subscribe to it so again if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you'll be able to get access to Leisure Cult Newsletter. Now, let's get back into the episode. Friend, areas that you step into as, as a lawyer, what, what would you like to see happen?
0: The first thing I'd like to see happen is the obvious, but it's a case of how do we get there, and it's this. It's impartial, unbiased, policing. So, policing where the intelligence led policing is not racially biased. So, we have a real issue with stop and search. It's been historic since the 1984 uh, Police and Criminal Evidence Act. We've got records of stop and searches. They, they have to complete a slip. And those statistics that we rely on are police statistics. So their own statistics are condemning them. So what the police have to then do is explain why and Cricida Dick sought to explain that in 2020 when Yvonne Cooper, the Home Affairs Select Committee asked her about the 80,000 stop and searches of black men, young black men in London in three months between March and May. Yvonne Cooper said, are you not alarmed? And Dick the former commissioner said, "I am not alarmed. I'm alert. Doubling down on the police's racist stop and search by effectively saying that we are alert to black people who are criminals, young black men who are rightfully under suspicion because of knife crime or whatnot. And when you draw down and you look at, in fact, why they are stopping." black young men the great preponderance of those stop and searches relate to a smell of cannabis smell of cannabis we know the pretext we know in many of these cases you have not smelled cannabis we know that we can't prove you did not smell cannabis that's why it is the most effective ruse the most effective pretext for a stop and search as with child q is a smell of cannabis. Now, of course, Charlie was not stopped and searched. She was already in school and she, was, she experienced horrific, humiliating stop and search on the basis that the teachers could smell cannabis. So what I would like to see is prohibiting stop and search on the basis of the smell of cannabis. Now, I know that the police, uh, certain police, certain police watchdog on and said, look, there has to be more than just a smell of cannabis. Now, some of the reasons are outrageous. I've got a case at the moment, whereby I'm representing, in fact, a lawyer. I'm not going to go any further than that. I'm being careful with my words, in fact, here. And when you look at the reason for the stop and search, in fact, it was just a stop in that case, was that you were paying too much attention to us you're driving an expensive car that are often stolen. And your name is very common. And when we did a search on that very, very common name that obviously I can't mention, we got a hit for a disqualified driver. And that was a top hit. And I looked at the, the reasons and I thought, my Lord, these reasons are so ridiculous. They're unreasonable. If I am looking at a police officer it means the police officer is looking at me if he's noticed. So why are you looking at me? It's just, it's just, it's, it's a joke. If you allege that I've looked at you, it's not suspicious for me to look at you when I'm going about my daily business. And I see the police, I am looking because you're a police officer and I want to know what you're up to. If you're fighting crime, I'm, I'm curious. Why wouldn't any member of the public be curious of seeing the police in action? We should pay attention to our police officers and our fire officers and firemen and paramedics. When a paramedic or an ambulance, a paramedic rider or an ambulance is stopped, I'm having a good look. Call me nosy. I'm like most members of the public. If the police stop outside my house or they stop down my street, I want to know what the, what is there going to be some action? I want to see what's going on. I want like most members of the public. So to suggest is suspicious. And this is what the police said in the case of the Sunday school, young black man. Who I settled his case in May. One of the reasons for his stop was he looked at us. (laughs) Can you believe it? If you're a black person, you better not look at the police. And then if you don't look at the police, it will be, hmm, very odd that you should not pay attention to the police. That's what people do. So how is it that you looked away when you saw us? It's, 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 it's walking on the cracks type grounds. He walked on the cracks in, in the pavement, therefore, under the old law, That's very suspicious. It's outrageous. And then to say you're driving an expensive vehicle, and expensive vehicles get stolen. It's outrageous. 99.99% of expensive vehicles on the road are not stolen. So what made you think that this one might be? So when you add all the reasons together, and what makes you think that a name like John Smith is not going to be at the top for a disqualified driver? 99.9% of the John Smiths in the Police National Computer Are not disqualified. So, why have the bias, the racial bias, that one, he's looking at me suspiciously, two, it's an expensive car, and three, John Smith's a disqualified driver and you've got the same name as John Smith? It's racist. The pretext of a smell of cannabis is, I'll have to have a look at what. The position is in the united states the states now have legalized cannabis what rules do the police then have because if you no longer have the smell of cannabis because it's been legalized what then do they use the answer is i want to see an end to racist stop and search because stop and search is usually the catalyst for death in police custody so we've got george floyd a stop an arrest if we can see yes stop and search, it means that the the black community is then no longer over police, certainly on stop Stop and search is the, the most traumatic, blunt tool that's being used to smash the black community, stop and search. So I think the reason why there's so much focus on stop and search, stop and search is the greatest interaction between the police and the black community is stop and search. I want to see a reduction. I want to see the whole race. From the start, would be a significant reduction in that, and then, but to be eliminated.
1: It's been interesting listening to you talk and share some of the experiences, and it's also been as, as painful in a sense as it is. It's also good to hear that there are people like yourselves who are in those positions who are basically fighting the system to ensure that there is a a more equitable and just system in place for people generally speaking but for black people as well that you're working with because I think what happens a lot of times is that example you gave earlier on even with uh, the Jamaican man where cases like that can easily just get discarded or washed away or not looked into and what it needed or what it took was someone who saw the person as a person rather than inconvenience to be able to lead in and do something and a lot of times, that's probably one of the biggest areas is you just want to be seen and you want to be heard. You want someone to take you and your case seriously. And that doesn't always happen due to a lot of cultural barriers sometimes. So you've been in that space to be able to fill that gap. And um as well as the work you do, like, like I said, you can check out his writing on The Voice. You can check out Terrence's writing on LinkedIn. He busts his joke and he comes with a realness at the same time. So you always get that equilibrium, which I absolutely love. And he does not hold back like he hasn't done today. But you being in that space for me, is just good to hear. And that's one of the reasons why I really just wanted you to come on and just to share a bit more about who you are, what you do, how you show up, how you make that difference. Because I think sometimes it's hard to think there's no one in that space at all. To think it's just bad and bad and bad and bad and bad. And bad. And yes, it's a massive space. The legal system is ridiculously huge. And there's still a lot of issues, as we talked about today. But it still feels good to know that there are people doing something and there are people fighting and trying to create that difference and that change. So thank you for sharing your story and I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you very much for inviting me to the (laughs) show. There are challenges that lie ahead. The current government, as we all know, is seeking to neuter, water down the rights under the Human Rights Act and the Equality Act is seeking to lessen the effectiveness of, of the legislation.
1: Keep on fighting the good fight, as the saying goes. This is Everyday Leadership. How you can find out more around Terence and the work he does and to get hold of him, all of that will be in the show notes. And I will see you next week. But I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as I have, because I just enjoyed just being to sit back and listen to some of those amazing stories that Terence shared, which I absolutely appreciate. See you next week, folks. Here's a quick preview of who we got coming up in week's episode. Make sure you're following the show so you don't miss out on this amazing guest.
0: Failure. I
1: mean, this is part of, uh this is part of the job. <laughs> yeah I mean I told my team I mean, like if you're not failing you're probably not betting big enough you know? one thing I do during the week is I go for a run and most days after each run I upload a video on LinkedIn only about two or three minutes so if you want to get a little bit-sized information as to what's going on in my head after that run check me out on LinkedIn Just type in my name, S-O-P-E-A-G-B-E-L-U-S-I, and you'll find me.
0: And you can tap into some more content outside of everyday leadership.